Section 15 of the Animal Storybook, edited by Andrew Lang. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Bishop. The Animal Storybook, edited by Andrew Lang. Monsieur Dumas and His Beasts. Chapters 1 through 3 by Mrs. Lang. Chapter 1. Most people have heard of Alexandre Dumas, the great French novelist who wrote The Three Musketeers, and many other delightful historical romances. Besides being a great novelist, M. Dumas was a most kind and generous man, kind both to human beings and to animals. He had a great many pets, of which he gives us the history in one of his books. Here are some of the stories about them in his own words. I was living, he says, at Monte Cristo. This was the name of his villa at St. Germain's. I lived there alone, except for the visitors I received. I love solitude, for solitude is necessary to anyone who works much. However, I do not like complete loneliness. What I love is that of the Garden of Eden a solitude peopled with animals. Therefore, in my wilderness at Monte Cristo, without being quite like Adam in every way, I had a kind of small earthly paradise. This is the list of my animals. I had a number of dogs, of which the chief was Pritchard. I had a vulture named Diogenes, three monkeys, of which bore the name of a celebrated translator, another of a famous novelist, and the third, which was a female, that of a charming actress. We will call the writer Potish, the novelist of the last of the Lady Mignons, and the lady Mademoiselle de Gassens. I had a great blue and yellow macaw named Bouval, and a green and yellow parakeet named Papa Everard, a cat named Misouf, a golden pheasant called Luculus, and finally a cock called Caesar. Let us give honor where honor is due, and begin with the history of Pritchard. I had an acquaintance named M. Lorat, who, having heard me say I had no dog to take out shooting, said, Ah, how glad I am to be able to give you something you will really like. A friend of mine who lives in Scotland sent me a pointer of the very best breed. I will give him to you. Bring Pritchard he added to his two little girls. How could I refuse a present offered so cordially? Pritchard was brought in. He was an odd-looking dog to be called a pointer. He was a long-haired, gray and white, with ears nearly erect, mustard-colored eyes, and a beautifully feathered tail. Except for the tail, he could scarcely be called a handsome dog. M. Lerat seemed even more delighted to give the present than I was to receive it, which showed what a good heart he had. The children called the dog Pritchard, he said, but if you don't like the name, call him what you please. I had no objection to the name. My opinion was that if anyone had cause to complain, it was the dog himself. Pritchard, therefore, continued to be called Pritchard. He was at this time about nine or ten months old, and ought to begin his education. So I sent him to a gatekeeper named Vatron to learn his duties. 
But two hours after I had sent Pritchard to Vatrin, he was back again at my house. He was not made welcome. On the contrary, he received a good beating from Michelle, who was my gardener, porter, butler, and confidential servant all in one, and who took Pritchard back to Vatrin. Vatrin was astonished. Pritchard had been shut up with the other dogs in a kennel, and he must have jumped over the enclosure, which was a high one. Early the next morning, when the housemaid had opened my front door, there was Pritchard sitting outside. Michel again beat the dog, and again took him back to Vedrin, who this time put a collar around his neck and chained him up. Michel came back and informed me of the severe but necessary measure. Vatrin sent a message to say that I should not see Pritchard again until his education was finished. The next day, while I was writing in a little summer house in my garden, I heard a furious barking. It was Pritchard fighting with a great Pyrenean sheepdog which another of my friends had just given me. This dog was named Mouton, because of his white woolly hair like a sheep's, not on account of his disposition, which was remarkably savage. Pritchard was rescued by Michel from Mouton's enormous jaws. Once more beaten, and for the third time taken back to Vatrin, Pritchard, it appears, had eaten his collar, though how he managed it Vatrin never knew. He was now shut up in a shed, and unless he ate the walls or the door, he could not possibly get out. He tried both, and, finding the door more digestible, he ate the door and the next day at dinner-time Pritchard walked into the dining-room wagging his plumy tail, his yellow eyes shining with satisfaction. This time Pritchard was neither beaten nor taken back. We waited till Vatrin should come to hold a council of war as to what should be done with him. The next day Vatrin appeared. Did you ever see such a rascal? he began. Vatrin was so excited that he had forgotten to say, Good morning! or how do you do? I tell you, he said, that rascal Pritchard puts me in such a rage that I have crunched the stem of my pipe three times between my teeth and broken it, and my wife has had to tie it up with string. He'll ruin me in pipes, that brute, that vagabond. Pritchard, do you hear what is said about you? said I. Pritchard heard, but perhaps did not think it mattered much about Vatrin's pipes, for he only looked at me affectionately and beat upon the ground with his tail. I don't know what to do with him, said Vatrin. If I keep him, he'll eat holes in the house. I suppose, yet I don't like to give him up. He's only a dog. It's humiliating for a man, don't you know? I'll tell you what, Vatrin, said I. We will take him down to Vezinay and go for a walk through your preserves, and then we will see whether it is worth while to take any more trouble with this vagabond, as you call him. I call him by his name. It oughtn't be Pritchard. It should be Bluebeard. It should be Blunderbore. It should be Judas Iscariot. Vatrin enumerated all the greatest villains he could think of at the moment. I called Michel. Michel. Give me my shooting shoes and gaiters. We will go to Vezinay to see what Pritchard can do. You will see, sir, said Michel, that you will be better pleased than you think. 
for Michelle always had a liking for Pritchard. We went down a steep hill to Vezinay. Michelle followed with Pritchard on a leash. At the steepest place I turned round. Look there upon the bridge in front of us, Michelle, I said. There is a dog very like Pritchard. Michelle looked behind him. There was nothing but the leather straps in his hand. Pritchard had cut it through with his teeth and was now standing on the bridge amusing himself by looking at the water through the railing. He is a vagabond, said Vatrin. Look, where is he off to now? He has gone, said I, to see what my neighbor Corrège has for luncheon. Sure enough, the next moment Pritchard was seen coming out of M. Corrège's back door, pursued by a maid servant with her broom. He had a veal cutlet in his mouth, which he had just taken out of the frying pan. Monsieur Dumas, cried the maid, Monsieur Dumas, stop your dog. We tried, but Pritchard passed between Michel and me like a flash of lightning. It seems, said Michel, that he likes his veal underdone. My good woman, I said to the cook, who was still pursuing Pritchard, I fear that you are losing time and that you will never see your cutlet again. Well then, let me tell you, sir, that you have no right to keep and feed a thief like that. It is you, my good woman, who are feeding him today, not I. Me, said the cook, it's, it's M. Courage. And what will M. Courage say? I should like to know. He will say, like Michelle, that it seems Pritchard likes his veal underdone. Well, but he'll not be pleased. He will think it's my fault. Never mind. I will invite your master to luncheon with me. All the same, if your dog goes on like that, he will come to a bad end. That is all I have to say. He will come to a bad end. And she stretched out her broom in an attitude of melediction towards the spot where Pritchard had disappeared. We three stood looking at one another. Well, said I, we have lost Pritchard. We'll soon find him, said Michelle. We therefore set off to find Pritchard, whistling and calling to him as we walked on towards Vatrin's shooting ground. This search lasted for a good half hour, Pritchard not taking the slightest notice of our appeals. At last Michelle stopped. Sir, he said, look there, just come look. Well, what? said I, going to him. Look, said Michelle, pointing. I followed the direction of Michelle's finger and saw Pritchard in a perfectly immovable attitude, as rigid as if carved in stone. Vatrin, said I, come here. Vatrin came. I showed him Pritchard. I think he is making a point, said Vatrin. Michelle thought so too. But what is he pointing at? I asked. We cautiously came nearer to Pritchard, who never stirred. He certainly is pointing, said Vatrin. Then making a sign to me, look there, he said. Do you see anything? Nothing. What, you don't see a rabbit sitting? If only I had my stick, I'd knock it on the head, and it would make a nice stew for your dinner. Oh, said Michel, if that's all, I'll cut you a stick. Well, but Pritchard might leave off pointing. No fear of him. I'll answer for him, unless, indeed, the rabbit goes away. 
Vatrin proceeded to cut a stick. Pritchard never moved. Only from time to time he turned his yellow eyes upon us, which shone like a topaz. Have patience, said Michel. Can't you see that M. Vatrin is cutting a stick? And Pritchard seemed to understand as he turned his eye on Vatrin. You have still time to take off the branches, said Michel. When the branches were taken off and the stick was quite finished, Vatrin approached cautiously, took a good aim, and struck with all his might into the middle of the tuft of grass where the rabbit was sitting. He had killed it. Pritchard darted in upon the rabbit, but Vatrin took it from him, and Michel slipped it into the lining of his coat. This pocket had already held a good many rabbits in its time. Vatrin turned to congratulate Pritchard, but he had disappeared. He's off to find another rabbit, said Michel. And accordingly, after ten minutes or so, we came upon Pritchard making another point. This time Vatrin had a stick ready cut, and after a minute, plunging his hands into a briar bush, he pulled out by the ears a second rabbit. There, Michel, he said, put that into your other pocket. Oh, said Michel, there's room for five more in this one. Hallo, Michel, people don't say those things before a magistrate. And turning to Vatrin, I added, Let us try once more. Vatrin, the number three, is approved by the gods. Maybe, said Vatrin, but perhaps it won't be approved by M. Guren. M. Guren was the police inspector. Next time we came upon Pritchard pointing, Vatrin said, I wonder how long he would stay like that. And he pulled out his watch. Well, Vatrin, said I, you shall try the experiment as it is your own vocation, but I am afraid I have not the time to spare. Michel and I then returned home. Vatrin followed with Pritchard an hour afterwards. Five and twenty-five minutes, he called out as soon as he was within hearing, and if the rabbit had not gone away, the dog would have been there now. Well, Vatrin, what do you think of him? Why, I say, he is a good pointer. He has only to learn to retrieve, and that you can teach him yourself. I need not keep him any longer. Do you hear, Michel? Oh, sir, said Michel, he can do that already. He retrieves like an angel. This failed to convey to me an exact idea of the way in which Pritchard retrieved. But Michel threw a handkerchief, and Pritchard brought it back. He then threw one of the rabbits that Vatrin carried, and Pritchard brought back the rabbit. Michel then fetched an egg and placed it on the ground. Pritchard retrieved the egg as he had done the rabbit and the handkerchief. Well, said Vatrin, the animal knows all that human skill can teach him. He wants nothing now but practice. And when one thinks, he added, that if the rascal would only come in to heal, he would be worth twenty pounds if he was worth a penny. True, I said with a sigh, but you may give up hope. Vatrin, that is a thing he will never consent to. Chapter 2 I think that the time has now come to tell my readers a little bit about Mademoiselle de Gossens, Potish, and the last of the late Manoirs. Mademoiselle de Gossens was a tiny monkey. I do not know the place of her birth, but I brought her from Havre, where I had gone, I don't know why, perhaps to look at the sea, 
but I thought I must bring something home with me from Havre. I was walking there in the quay when at the door of a bird fancier's shop I saw a green monkey and a blue and yellow macaw. The monkey put its paw through the bars of its cage and caught hold of my coat, while the blue parrot turned its head and looked at me in such an affectionate manner that I stopped, holding the monkey's paw with one hand and scratching the parrot's head with the other. The little monkey gently drew my hand within reach of her mouth. The parrot half shut its eyes and made a little purring noise to express its pleasure. Monsieur Dumas, said the shopman, coming out with the air of a man who was more delighted to sell than I was to buy. Monsieur Dumas, may I accommodate you with my monkey and my parrot? It would have been more to the purpose if he had said, Monsieur Dumas, may I incommode you with my monkey and my parrot? However, after a little bargaining, I bought both animals as well as a cage for the monkey and a perch for the parrot. And as soon as I arrived home, I introduced them to Michel. This, said Michel, is the green monkey of Senegal, Circopithecus Sabea. I looked at Michel in the greatest astonishment. Do you know Latin, Michel? I don't know Latin, but I do know my dictionary of natural history. Oh, indeed! And do you know what bird this is? I asked, showing him the parrot. To be sure I know it, said Michel. It is a blue and yellow macaw. Macrocircus araana. Oh, sir, why did you not bring a female as well as a male? What is the use, Michel, since parrots will not breed in this country? There you make a mistake, sir. The blue macaw will breed in France. In the south, perhaps? It need not be in the south, sir. Where, then? At Cannes. At Cannes? I did not know Cannes had a climate which permits parrots to rear their young. Go and fetch my gazette here. You will soon see, said Michel as he brought it. I read, Cannes, capital of the department of Calvados, upon the Orne and the Odin, 223 kilometers west of Paris, 41,806 inhabitants. You will see, said Michel, the parrots are coming. Great trade in plaster, salt, wood, taken by the English in 1346, retaken by the French N.C. N.C., never mind the date. That is all, Michel. What? Your dictionary never says that the Arana, otherwise called the Blue Macaw, produces young at Cannes? No, Michel, it does not say that here. What a dictionary. Just wait till I fetch you mine and you will see. Michel returned in a few minutes with his book of natural history. You will soon see, sir, he said, opening his dictionary in his turn. Parrot, here it is. Parrots are monogamous. As you know Latin, Michel, of course you know what monogamous means. That means they can sing scales, gamut, I suppose. Well, no, Michel, not exactly. It means that they only have one wife. Indeed, sir, that is because they talk like us most likely. Now I have found the place. It was long believed that parrots were incapable of breeding in Europe, but the country has been proven on a pair of blue macaws which lived at Cannes. M. Lamarousse furnishes the details of these results. Let us hear the details which M. Lamarousse furnishes. These macaws, 
from March 1818 until August 1822, including a period of four years and a half laid in all sixty-two eggs. Michelle, I never said they did not lay eggs. What I said was, Out of this number, continued Michelle in a loud voice, twenty-five young macaws were hatched, of which only ten died. The others lived and continued perfectly healthy. Michelle, I confess to having entertained false ideas on the subject of macaws. They laid at all seasons of the year, continued Michelle, and more eggs were hatched in the latter than in the former years. Michelle, I have no more to say. The number of eggs in the nest varied. There have been as many as six at a time. Michelle, I yield, rescue or no rescue. Only, said Michelle, shutting the book, you must be careful not to give them bitter almonds or parsley. No bitter almonds, I answered, because they contain prussic acid. But why not parsley? Michelle, who had kept his thumb on the page, reopened the book. Parsley and bitter almonds, he read, are a violent poison to parrots. All right, Michelle, I shall remember. I remembered so well that some time after, hearing that M. Purcell had died suddenly, Purcell being the French for parsley, I exclaimed, much shocked, Ah, poor man, how unfortunate. He must have been eating parrot. However, the news was afterwards contradicted. The next day I desired Michel to tell the carpenter to make a new cage for Mademoiselle de Gossens, who would certainly die of cramp if left in her small traveling cage. But Michel, with a solemn face, said it was unnecessary. For, he said, I am sorry to tell you, sir, that a misfortune has happened. A weasel has killed the golden pheasant. You will, however, have it for your dinner today. I did not refuse. Though the prospect of this repast caused me no great pleasure, I am very fond of game, but somehow prefer pheasants which have been shot to those killed by weasels. Then, said I, if the cage is empty, let us put in a monkey. We brought the little cage close to the big cage and opened the doors. The monkey sprang into her new abode, bounded from perch to perch, and then came and looked at me through the bars, making grimaces and uttering plaintive cries. She is unhappy without a companion, said Michelle. Suppose we give her the parrot. You know that little boy, Anouvignot, who comes here with his monkey asking for pennies? If I were you, sir, I would buy that monkey. And why that monkey rather than another? He has been so well educated and is so gentle. He has a cap with a feather, and he takes it off when you give him a nut or a bit of sugar. Can he do anything else? He can fight a duel. Is that all? No, he can also catch fleas on his master. But, Michel, do you think that that youth would part with so useful an animal? We can but ask him. And there he is at this moment. And he called to the boy to come in. The monkey was sitting on a box which the little boy carried on his back, and when his master took off his cap, the monkey did the same. It had a nice, gentle little face, and I remarked to Michelle that it was very like a well-known translator of my acquaintance. If I have the happiness to become the owner of this charming animal, I continued, we will call it Potish, 
and giving Michel forty francs, I left him to make his bargain with the little Auvignon. Chapter 3 I had not entered my study since my return from Havre, and there is always a pleasure in coming home again after an absence. I was glad to come back, and looked about me with a pleasured smile, feeling sure that the furniture and ornaments of the room, if they could speak, would say they were glad to see me again. As I glanced from one familiar object to another, I saw, upon a seat by the fire, a thing like a black and white muff, which I had never seen before. When I came closer, I saw that the muff was a little cat, curled up half asleep and purring loudly. I called the cook, whose name was Madame Lamarck. She came in after a minute or two. So sorry to have kept you waiting, but you see, sir, I was making a white sauce, and you who can cook yourself know how quickly those sauces curdle if you are not looking after them. Yes, I know that, Madame Lamarck, but what I do not know is where this new guest of mine comes from, and I pointed to the cat. Ah, sir, said Madame Lamarck in a sentimental tone, that is Antony. An Antony? Madame Lamarck, what is that? In other words, an orphan, a foundling, sir. Poor little beast. I felt sure that would interest you, sir. And where did you find it, Madame Lamarck? In the cellar. I heard a little cry. Meow, meow, meow. And I said to myself, that must be a cat. No, did you actually say that? Yes, and I went down myself, sir, and I found the poor little thing behind the sticks. Then I recollected how you had once said, we ought to have a cat in the house. Did I say so? I think you are making a mistake, Madame Lamarck. Indeed, sir, you did say so. Then I said to myself, Providence has sent us the cat which my master wishes for, and now there is one question I must ask you, sir. What shall we call the cat? We will call it Misouf, if you have no objection, and please be careful, Madame Lamarck, that it does not eat my quails and turtle doves or any of my little foreign birds. If M. Dumas is afraid of that, said Michel, coming in, there is a method of preventing cats from eating birds. And what is the method, my good friend? You have a bird in a cage. Very well. You cover three sides of the cage. You make a gridiron red hot. You put it against the uncovered side of the cage. You let out the cat and you leave the room. The cat, when it makes its spring, jumps against the hot gridiron. The hotter the gridiron is, the better the cat is afterwards. Thank you, Michel. And what of the troubadour and his monkey? To be sure... I was coming to tell you about that. It is all right, sir. You are to have potash for forty francs. Only you must give the boy two white mice and a guinea pig in return. But where am I to find two white mice and a guinea pig? If you will leave the commission to me, I will see that they are found. I left the commission to Michel. If you won't think me impertinent, sir, said Madame Lamarck, I should so like to know what Misouf means. Misouf means just Misouf, Madame Lamarck. It's a cat's name, then? Certainly, since Misouf I was so called. It is true, Madame Lamarck. You never knew Misouf. And I became so thoughtful that Madame Lamarck was kind enough to withdraw quietly, 
without asking any questions about Misuf the first. That name had taken me back to fifteen years ago, when my mother was still living. I had then the great happiness of having a mother to scold me sometimes. At the time I speak of, I had a situation in the service of the Duc d'Orléans and the salary of 1,500 francs. My work occupied me from ten in the morning until five in the afternoon. We had a cat in those days whose name was Misouf. This cat had missed his vocation. He ought to have been a dog. Every morning I started my office at half-past nine and came back every evening at half-past five. Every morning Misouf followed me to the corner of a particular street, and every evening I found him in the same street at the same corner waiting for me. Now the curious thing was that on the days when I had found some amusement elsewhere and was not coming home to dinner, it was no use to open the door for Misouf to go and meet me. Side note. A remarkable instance of telepathy in the cat. A. Period L. Misouf, in the attitude of the serpent with its tail in its mouth, refused to sit from his cushion. On the other hand, the days I did come, Misouf would scratch at the door until someone opened it for him. My mother was very fond of Misouf. She used to call him her barometer. Misouf marks my good and my bad weather, my dear mother would say. The days you come in are my days of sunshine. My rainy days are when you stay away. When I came home, I used to see Misouf at the street corner, sitting quite still and gazing into the distance. As soon as he caught sight of me, he began to move his tail. Then, as I drew nearer, he rose and walked backwards and forwards across the pavement with his back arched and his tail in the air. When I reached him, he jumped up upon me as a dog would have done, and bounded and played round me as I walked towards the house. But when I was close to it, he dashed in at full speed. Two seconds after, I used to see my mother at the door. Never again in this world, but in the next, perhaps, I shall see her standing waiting for me at the door. That is what I was thinking of, dear readers, when the name of Misouf brought back all those recollections. So you understand why I did not answer Madame Lamarck's questions. Henceforth, Misouf the second enjoyed the same privileges that Misouf the first had done, although, as will be seen later, he was not distinguished by similar virtues, but was in fact a very different sort of cat. End of section 15